This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Twenty-second or January twenty-third? Uh, hit me with some January twenty-third national days, Andrew. <laughs> it's, it's National Handwriting Day. Oh, perfect! I need to the practice worst day mine. that there is. Uh huh. Okay. My penmanship is pretty bad. Um, it's also National Pie Day, which is it March fourteenth? That's well, maybe that's Global Pie International Pie Day. Maybe America need, decided it needed to have its own pie day. Nas- okay, is this okay? So from nationaldaycalendar.com. <laughs> Uh, forward slash national dash pie dash day dash January dash 23. Um, national Pie Day was created simply to celebrate the pie. What? It is a day for all to bake or cook their favorite pies. Okay. Even more importantly, it is a day set aside for all to enjoy eating pies. Weird. The first pies appeared around 9500 BC in the Egyptian Neolithic period or New Stone Age. I... Fun tidbit. Pie throwing. Cream-filled or top pies are favorite props for humor. Throwing a pie in a person's face has been a staple of film comedy since Ben Turpin received one in Mr. Flip in 1909. Welcome to Overdue. <laughs> this is a Remember podcast. Every Coen Brothers movie where they just hit somebody in the face yeah, with a pie. It's, been it's, really a, funny. it's been a timeless source of comedy. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Craig. Or is it Andrew? <laughs> Did you get it wrong? Yes. <laughs> You're so distracted I was by the pies. Pie yeah. It was created by the American Pie Council. Why didn't they lean into in 19, 1986? <laughs> to commemorate Crisco's 75th anniversary of serving foods to families everywhere. No. <laughs> Corporate America got us again. Now, here's the thing. Did the math people... Get the monopoly. Did the American Math Council get mm. the monopoly on March fourteenth? And so the the pie with an E folks needed their own holiday. Well, let me just go to. I'm going to go to www.nationaldaycalendar.com forward slash March, and I'm going to go down to the fourteenth and see if Pi Day also. Was I really appreciate how you articulate. Uh, okay, forward so slashes the URL so people can find it. Yeah, um, I know. So National Pie without an E Day. Uh huh. Is on March 14th. Yes. Along with National Learn About Butterflies Day and <laughs> National Potato Chip Day. Um, okay. Now, this this one comes with uh, observation instructions. So you can eat a slice of pie. You can go to a pie eating contest. You can discuss the significance of the number <laughs> pie. Or more recently, watching Life of Pie. <laughs> Boy, this is a good website. This, this is, is way better than our website. That's true. And we've got to do a book podcast. I, that's why mm. we're here. Arguably, yeah. Arguably. Um, so this week we're going to talk about Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mendel. Um, I read it. That The way that this show works is that I'm going to talk to Andrew about it. He hasn't read it. 
That's usually the way that this it works. Be, it will become obvious shortly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've structured all of my talking points as questions just to stump Andrew. Uh, mm-hmm. It's worth noting before we get underway that we have just a short amount of time to promote our upcoming live show here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Gonna be live in Philly. On February 11th, our good friends at uh, the Philly Podfest and the Free Library have decided to like join forces to host us so that we might join forces with another podcast called Appointment Television. I don't know that you've... Have you ever heard of that show, Andrew? Um, they seem fine. I mean, I listened to a couple episodes. <laughs> so we're going to do a podcast double bill about books at a place that has a bunch of books. And mm-hmm. Andrew, if folks wanted to like buy tickets, which like some of which goes to benefit the library itself, like where should they go? Okay. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the event set up at a uh, bit.ly slash library show. That's all one word. Um, the tickets are up on brownpapertickets.com. They cost 15 bucks plus like another couple like a of dollars in fee fees. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, the doors open at 5.30 p.m. Um, we go on at 7, appointment television, which I also am in. I was goofing earlier. Uh, they go on at 6 p.m. And uh, we're going to be reading uh, Treasure Island yeah. by Robert Louis Stevenson. Right? Yeah, I'm excited. And then uh, uh, ATV will also be, we'll be talking about Wishbone, and we're going to be talking about books on TV and educational TV. It's going to be Treasure Island and book themed because it's happening in a library. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, bit.ly slash library show, or we have a link to it up on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash overdue pod. Um, as far as I know, you can buy tickets pretty much up till the day. Like, I don't know that there's a cutoff for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's coming up on February 11th, which is a Saturday. And then um, after the show, you can come and hang out with us at the Kite and Key, which is a bar not far away. Uh, we have all the info about that up on the Facebook page as well. So again, bit.ly slash library show. How we got that URL, I'll never know. But that's that's just the way Bitly works. Somebody, I guess they must recycle them or something. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, welcome to our guessing about how the internet works podcast. Well, you guessed your way into National Day calendars, so we're fine. Andrew, we're talking about this book. Why don't you tell me about Emily St. John Mandel, and I'll chime in if there's anything else that I learned about her. Okay, I will do that. Um, She was born in 1979, and she has written four novels, um, the first in 2009, and then the most recent, which is Station Eleven in 2014. So uh, Last Night in Montreal, The Singer's Gun, The Lola Quartet, and then Station Eleven. And Station Eleven's really her her breakout thing. I think it it was nominated for or won a bunch of awards, um, nominated for the National Book Award, um, the Penn slash Faulkner Award for Fiction, and the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, and then it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Toronto Book Award. And um, there's also a film version of it that's being developed by Scott Steindorf. I don't know who that is, um, but okay. Who he's he's also uh, he did a movie version of Love in the Time of Cholera and mm. a few other things. Is he a fan of um, our show? Is he like is that where he's getting his inspiration from? Obviously, yes. Um, or not? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. 
so she's a she's a contemporary author and as we've talked about sometimes with contemporary authors there's not like an established body of scholarship to draw from when like talking about her i know from uh listening to and reading interviews that she took about two and a half years to write this book um she likes to write at home usually in the mornings and um at least as of 2014 she had a part-time job as an administrative assistant that she did in the afternoons and on the weekends um and her husband is also a writer and they both like work from home together and like to like they're there. She says their idea of the ideal weekend is to write for eight hours and then meet up for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. I think he's also he's like a playwright. Right. I think um, I'm not sure. Maybe I among other things. Um, um, and then she so she's she seems like a nerd. And I don't say that in a disparaging way. I say that in like a, a cool kind of way because she references Star Trek in this book. Uh huh. And also she's a pretty big like data nerd. So she's she's yeah. done some studies of titles of books in particular so she did using goodreads she did a search for books with girl in the title so like the girl with the dragon tattoo or whatever um yeah this was an article for 538 i think i i found it covered in the guardian but i think it was originally for 538 yeah and then she did another one which i thought was even more fun in uh, for the millions about the blanks daughter Mm. that title convention of the of the girl book she says that when the girl book is written by a male author the girl usually ends up dead which is super fun Mm -hmm. cool 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 well it ends patriarchy she ends up dead more often than right not always but statistically yeah yeah and then um she says so she was doing a look through Goodreads for books with the blank's daughter as the title. Mm-hmm. And after eliminating things that didn't quite meet the meet the convention or eliminating duplicates, she ended up with 530 titles. Uh-huh. And she says this is not the total. This is just the arbitrary point at which she decided to stop counting. <laughs> she was on page 88 of 200 pages of search results. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. And so she was doing so she was doing some interviews about why this happens. And she decided she said, you know, I'm not gonna ask authors because I know that a lot of the times authors don't get to decide what their book's title is or even what like huh. the cover art is. Okay. And sometimes the stuff goes to press with a title or with a cover that the author really doesn't care for. And I have ever had like headlines and stuff adjusted that I've written in it. It feels like it doesn't feel great because it's still yours and it still has your name on it, but it wasn't presented the way that you sort of like sure. it to be. Interesting. Um, okay. Even though a lot of the time, like the editor created title or headline is going to like sell better or do better by some objective metric that's hard to argue with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so she decided to talk to booksellers who she says were often more willing to talk about the publishing business than people in publishing. <laughs> And one of them said that um, it's familiar sounding titles drive sales because they help give readers a small feeling of comfort when they're contemplating which book to purchase out of the thousands and thousands available. Hmm. Okay. Which I thought was neat. Uh, I found some of the stats in the, the girl study that I thought were interesting that she found is that she did a similar culling thing where she just like knocked out Goodreads books that had under 250 ratings, like presumably just to get like a lot of self-published books that to work maybe, out like yeah, the Christmas limited, sex yeah. books and that kind of and stuff. And she cut out like, <laughs> she cut out like cookbooks <laughs> and like kids books and stuff. And she still ended up with like over 800 of them. Uh, 65% of the girls in those books were actually women. Like were not like young girls. It mm-hmm. would, and, and she was wondering that like, 
you know, some of that's just maybe characters growing up or whatnot. Um, the other thing in the in books written by women, as you said, only seven percent of the titular girls were dead. But in books where they they were authored by males, it was seventeen percent. And sh- oh, okay, so that's not as bad. Yeah, but but also the number doubled between a book girls that were missing between female writers and male writers as well. Uh, oh, I think that's just because when people are missing, like so, like as Gone Girl taught us, yes, it's either some kind of mind freak or <laughs> the girl is dead. Uh, I the main thing that she chalked it up to is perhaps uh if you're a male author you're more likely to have a male protagonist and then like your women characters get put in the like damsel in distress role or you know motivating death role and if they are female protagonists in female written books like the the girls were alive 90 percent of the time which kind of jive it's like not as often that you just kill your protagonist so I think that's an interesting like correlation to make, but she wasn't, you know, chalking that up to everything. Yeah, uh, sure. I don't know if you mentioned that she like studied at the School of Toronto Dance Theater. No, I did not, but yeah, she did. Um you kind of <laughs> <laughs> Well, and right. she then moved to Montreal and then to New York. Um you, some of that theater background stuff comes up in in Station 11 as well, so it felt worth mentioning. And then I found an interview with her in Publishers Weekly where she talks about like fate and kind of butterfly effect choices or choices that connect to multiple people. And it jives with her own narrative of how she met her husband. So she said, what tiny thing that you do changes everything. Um, And then she launches into a story of how she met her husband only because she picked up a free newspaper in Toronto more than a decade ago, read a book review and began corresponding with its author. He became her boyfriend and they moved to New York City where she met the man who eventually became her husband. (laughs) Wait, the author of the book review or the author of the book? I unclear from this. From okay, this so she met text. one of those people and then moved to New York with him and then married yeah, someone else who is another person. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. And Life comes at you fast, she, you know, and she based on Station Eleven, she does seem to have a her brain is wired to like look at those patterns and both recognize like her propensity for finding them and also how seductive they are. So mm-hmm. uh, cool. Interesting that her own personal narrative kind of jives with that. So yeah. let's get into the book now or after we take a break after we take a break yeah take that break andrew greg let's talk about food okay let's get hungry let's get hungry up in this mid-roll i like food Mm -hmm. i could eat a mid-roll right now Andrew, <laughs> I want to talk to you about Blue Apron. Okay. What's um, the deal with them? They are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Uh, I think they're also like, they have like a bunch of sustainable food practices where they like source from local farms and fisheries and ranchers. Basically, they will send a box of food to your house mm-hmm. so you don't have to go to the grocery store right and so yeah what they what they do is they'll send you um as many as three meals a week that's uh, meals that serve two people 
and the cost works out to um, under $10 per person per meal. And um, you can eat stuff like spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furry kake mm-hmm. and mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. And they send you the stuff with um, these big recipe cards that are easy to follow and they have pictures of stuff that you're cooking so you can't mess it up too bad. <laughs> And um, if you want to make the recipes again, which is kind of cool, like we, my, Susanna and I have done this a couple times, is we'll save the ones we really like and then we'll just like go to the grocery store and buy the ingredients and like make the same thing again. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a good way to teach yourself basic cooking concepts, like how reducing things always makes it better. <laughs> That's true. Reducing and is And also important. to get like specific recipes that you can make again at some point in the future. So Craig, if people want to figure out more about this, what, what has it happen? Well, they can check out this week's menu and get their first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash overdue and i bet that they will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with blue apron so they better not wait it's blueapron.com slash overdue blue apron a better way to cook craig what oh geez you fed you fed your belly now feed your brain go to penn state world (laughs) campus how am I going to feed my brain online? Do, do, do you think they appreciate us making up cool taglines like <laughs> "Feed your brain, Penn State World Campus"? I hope so, because we've <laughs> we're, we've spent a lot of time and effort on these cool taglines for them. There's a lot of yeah, a lot of workshopping, a lot of like freelance consultants we hire. Um, so for the Penn State World Campus allows you to earn your Penn State degree online from anywhere in the world. Um, they offer more than 125 graduate and undergraduate degree and certificate programs and has the most top 10 ranked programs in the U.S. News and World Report's 2017 Best Online Programs Rankings. Um, it's a great choice if you're a busy working adult, if you want to start a new career, or if you just want to advance the career in the field that you already have. And if you're a busy person, then you can choose your own pace and take classes whenever you want instead of having to quit your job and go back to school, which boring. Don't do that. Yeah, pretty boring. Like maybe you have people who depend on you to live, (laughs) but you you... can't just go live at school like a 22 year old (laughs) or like how I used to think that teachers lived at school. Mm -hmm. I used to think. Wait, what? Wait, they visit. (laughs) Visit worldcampus.psu.edu to find out more. (laughs) They offer more than 125 graduate and undergraduate degrees and certificates online. So again, worldcampus.psu.edu. Feed your brain. Penn State World Campus, a world of possibilities online. (laughs) You just want to dive back in? Yeah. Let's do it. Let's keep doing the podcast. Let's keep doing the podcast. Andrew, this book is about the apocalypse. What oh, is that's original. Yeah. Well, hmm. what's your experience <laughs> with the apocalypse? Um, you know, for I find it not far from my mind lately <laughs> for a lot of reasons. I was reading um a I think it was a BuzzFeed article recently about how a lot of uh, liberals in particular have taken up like disaster prepping. Oh, sure. Which I think is kind of neat. Like I've always been sort of morbidly fascinated about it because like on the one hand, maybe it's silly if you buy like $200 of dried up food and distilled water and like put it in your crawl space and just keep it there. But on the other hand, 
if society does break down, who's the idiot now? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, yeah, it is a it's a lose win situation, I think, because you've lost. Well, what's the difference? Wait, what's the difference between lose win and win lose? Well, you lose first because society's gone, but you win because okay. you have jerky. Like that's you have jerky and jerky is money in the new world order. And also you have a gun maybe or like a bat. He who controls the jerky controls the universe. Is that Mad Max Fury Road 2? <laughs> so this this book was written in 24 published in 2014, right? And mm-hmm. it does stand on the shoulders of some previous apocalypse fiction. But before we dive in, I want to just share with you some thoughts. Whenever you talk about an apocalypse story, like it's worth thinking about how you would fare. And we've talked about this a little bit before with books like The Passage and uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. World War Z. World War Z. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Max Brooks has another book coming out. Ooh. Pretty intrigued. Maybe I'll do it for the show. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so I put the call out on Twitter and I got a couple responses. So we've got like some folks who are just kind of dive right in. Like Mary-Kate says that she would start collecting books so she could run a library and that she would start cross-dressing and learning how to use a gun, which, okay, wise. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also then agreed with another uh use Elizabeth who said that she would, you know, she needed to start stockpiling glasses and contact solution and contact lenses. Oh, yeah, we've all seen that Twilight mm-hmm. Zone episode. <laughs> uh, we know how that goes. I liked uh, E.K. Larsh just... Fr- like frankly just said when i asked how would you do they just said terribly and that's it <laughs> okay like it's good to know your own strengths and weaknesses uh-huh. <laughs> some of us were built to thrive in the apocalypse and some of us were built for the time that we're in now definitely ra worried that their main skills of reading and typing wouldn't help them very much uh beck douglas said that she was worried about uh seeing people in pain like and that's a thing that I hadn't even like I know that I don't know how I would handle that like not just like figurative pain or like mental pain but like seeing people wounded like we're gonna and, have to like s- blood and stuff. yeah like you're gonna have to set some bones like I, like to this day on TV if anybody comes anywhere close to like cutting their wrists mm. I just can't I physically cannot look Mm-mm. at the television Mm-mm. I can't do it I hate it Mm-mm. we talked about this in it a little bit like yep. I. When when exposed to that kind of thing for a sustained period of time, I have physical reactions yeah. that I think would not help me out in an apocalypse situation. Yeah, I would have to get over just like I have to deal with dead animals more. I don't like dead mm-hmm. animals. Like not like more. Like you like it's not like you don't deal with them now. It's just you'd have to do it more. I'd have to do it more, and I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Katie went like a really honest and said that she would off herself as soon as it became apparent we weren't going back to normal. And okay. To which I made the note, thanks the road. Like, <laughs> it's the book that that reminded me of, which is just, I mean, I get it. Like, I think, and that's, oh, that's only explored a little bit in this book, but just for some folks, like, nope, no thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause so, okay. So a lot of these reactions plus mine are all concerned with what happens right after society breaks down but as i understand it from from the interviews that i read it's like she is more concerned with what happens after that part is done and society starts to rebuild itself i have a um 
a quote that hit me she hit said me with your quote here. um it's not that i don't think that humans would descend into pure violence and horror it's more that i think we wouldn't stay there forever because mayhem isn't a particularly sustainable way of life over the long haul i do i do touch briefly on the horror in station 11 but i feel that the territory of post-apocalyptic horror has been very thoroughly covered by other <laughs> writers and i wasn't interested in spending too much time there for me it was more interesting to write about what comes next which is why the post-apocalyptic sections are set 20 years after the collapse yeah so, so, so is that a good place to start that is a great place to start let's just talk through the mechanics of what this apocalypse is and then i'll walk it back just a little bit it's a it's an outbreak. It's a like advanced swine flu thing that comes out of the Republic of Georgia and then starts like out of airports in Moscow. Um, and it's, it kills you within like hours. So mm-hmm. the swiftness of it is like terrifying. And, Within, I imagine, weeks, like anybody who's going to die, dies. Um, Mm -hmm. You get a little bit of like some folks wondering if maybe they're just immune to it. And uh, when when a couple people are talking about that around a campfire, like one guy's like, uh, oh, yeah, I guess I'm immune. Lucky me. I buried five of my family members. Hooray. Which is pretty sobering. That's Um, fun. But the, the point that she makes about the skipping ahead 20 years is interesting because... At one point, one of the main characters, Kirsten, uh, she encounters someone on the road, and while he's wary of her at first, like it only takes two or three lines of dialogue for him to be like, "Okay, you seem okay," and she remarks that like ten or twelve years ago, people would have been way more suspicious. Like after a certain amount of time, the really nasty stuff, for the most part. The basic right. There's some. There's some like baseline of trust and like when I go outside now, I have a pretty fair degree of confidence that nobody's gonna shiv me and try to take my precious jerky. For the most part, and that's and that's and that's they're like eighty percent of the way back to that. Now. Yeah, there's still jerky shivers out there, but mm-hmm. they're oh man, I got <laughs> I ate a bad piece of the jerky and now I got the jerky shivers. Less common than they used to be. Uh, partially I think because a lot of the resources have run out the conventional resources and so folks are building back up the odds that you're going to get something useful from someone else goes down Mm -hmm. Um, and so you kind of have to uh, people are a little bit more trusting in that regard so the book starts out this is one of those things where I knew it was a I knew it was an apocalypse story going in and I was kind of waiting for that shoe to drop so the book starts out with this man named Jeevan. Uh, he is in Toronto watching a production of King Lear. He is, it seems like an interesting production. There are three young girls playing like baby versions of Lear's daughters in the play. Like okay. they don't have lines or anything, but they're there like symbolically. Um, and the actor playing Lear is this guy named Arthur Leander, and he's like a former famous Hollywood actor. He's not too old, but he's not young. And Yeah, because to be famous in the before times, he'd probably have to be at least like late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, right? yeah, and he's had a lot of tabloid coverage. He's never won like an Oscar, and he always feels like he was a good actor, but never a great actor. And late in his career, he's doing this like stage run of Lear, and... 
while he's on stage in like the fourth or fifth act of the play, he has a heart of heart attack and dies. Um, and Jeevan, who's just recently like made a life choice to become a paramedic, like tries to rush on stage and help him. He can't revive him. So instead he ends up comforting one of those little girls that was in the play. Okay. And then after he dies, they take him away and afterwards everyone's gathered in the bar. And then like, this is where, um, Mandel drops in the first of the apocalypse things. So they're all sitting around the bar and they're talking about his gossipy career and everything. And she says at the end of a chapter of all of them there at the bar that night, the bartender was the one who survived the longest. He died three weeks later on the road out of the city. And you're just like, wait, Oh, so this is pre apocalypse. Yes. And And this is with a bunch of people who you never see again. Not net. Hmm. Sort of. Well, I mean, like, you do you get more flashbacks? Yes. Yes. You yes, see them, yes. but they don't like survive into the apocalyptic future. Yes. So that's uh, that's. Oh, is it the kind of thing where like you see somebody like in the background of that scene like sneezing or something, and you know what's coming? I hate that stuff. No, it's actually not. Um, I, the movie outbreak is basically <laughs> my nightmare scenario. <laughs> what happens next is uh, like Jeevan's girlfriend bails. They don't have a great relationship. And he gets a call from his, a friend of his who works at a hospital. And he's like, we've had 200 flu patients this morning. A plane came in and it had all these people from Russia who were sick. And 15 people have died in the past three hours. And we've got beds like parked in the hallways. And I personally hate the idea that hospitals are the least safe place to be. Like that freaks me out. <sighs> yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Uh, so th- this is happening side by side with the just kind of base story of people in Arthur's life, the actor kind of relaying his death and another chapter after one of his three wives is told that he's dead. Um, This was during the final month of the era when it was possible to press a series of buttons on a telephone and speak with someone on the far side of the earth. So right away, Mandel is kind of letting the reader know that she's really interested in the the technology that is lost like electricity mm-hmm. is the big one of the big things that gets lost in this apocalypse yeah i was gonna ask you like what technology level we're talking about once once things go south so because i know like from the interviews that the internet does not exist the internet does not exist but that's like that's a pretty sophisticated thing really like not only do you need the core technology to get it working but you need people who know how to operate it and keep it running yeah there's a there's a vignette when so one of the little girls in that production of Lear Kirsten ends up surviving and she joins this traveling band of actors called the traveling symphony and they go from town to town in the Great Lakes area performing Shakespeare we'll come back to that a little bit later but there's a vignette where she remembers meeting an old guy who had like hooked up a computer to a bike in his attic in the post-apocalypse and he was able to power it for a couple minutes at a time and what he was really trying to do was to connect to the internet and there's like an (laughs) image you think that the internet's gonna well because they don't know what's going on in the rest of the world he's just trying to see if it works yeah i guess and there's like the like it can get to a this page cannot be found prompt because it can't connect to the internet yeah guess what that's on your local computer you didn't get anywhere sure 
and so after the the paramedic Jeevan, like he gets this heads up that the apocalypse is going to happen. <laughs> Basically, he stocks up on supplies and heads to his brother's apartment. His brother was like a war reporter in Afghanistan and got shot and is like in a wheelchair. So he goes to his brother right away. And then we get this chapter that reminds me of a couple writing prompts I've done in classes, actually. It, it just says an incomplete list. And then it just starts, all these sentences are just no more blank. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. fill in those mad libs of all the things that don't exist. And then the last paragraph, I'm just going to read it for you, is no more internet. No more social media, no more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches, cries for help and expressions of contentment and relationship status updates with heart icons whole or broken, plans to meet up later, pleas, complaints, desires, pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween, no more reading and commenting on the lives of others and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room, no more avatars." It's like, oh man. Well, at least they couldn't make any more sequels to Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I really I really like that last one if only because one of the things that you get to do in the internet era is more explicitly project a version of yourself. I don't know that we've if there's a book that's really caused us to talk about that, but this idea that you can kind of make a persona online based out of what you choose and choose not to say, right? Mm-hmm. Some of that's like your Twitter brand these days. That's the word we use for it. Yeah. Um, but there's also a lot of the idea that when you go on Facebook, are you not a lot of people, I think, generally post negative stuff on Facebook unless they're looking for a bunch of people to kind of come in with, hey, no, I'm, I hear you. I see you. It's yeah, I feel better. like if if there's a social network that's going to be more about the skies falling, the world is ending, it's Twitter because <laughs> it's just easier and faster <laughs> to do it that way. Um, so she's she said a lot about social media and she said a lot about technology. And in particular about technology, she said that she wanted to show a world without it kind of as a way of celebrating it. Um, She says, there are a great many things about this world that are, of course, completely appalling, but we're surrounded by a level of technology and infrastructure that at any other point in human history would have been considered absolutely miraculous. One way to write about the modern world is to consider its absence, which is why I set parts of Station Eleven in a post-apocalyptic landscape. I thought of the book as a love letter written in the form of a requiem. Sure. Um, And then she, but she also, she says... Of the stuff that she would miss, like social media is 100% at the top. That she would miss it. She wouldn't miss oh, it. Oh, sure. <laughs> Sorry, I may have phrased that badly. Um, and she just, The most terrible thing about the internet is how distracted it's made us in the last few years. It's become much harder to walk down the sidewalk in New York because a fairly large percentage of the people walking towards you are mesmerized by their phones. I find those people kind of unsettling. They're here, but also somewhere else, which is to say they're nowhere in particular. There's something zombie-like about them. If the internet were to disappear, we'd return to being more or less in the same world when we walk down the street. Hmm. And I don't like she does preface that by saying, you know, I've met a ton of friends on social media, whatever, but also it's super distracting and constantly updating and it yeah. never ever it like never ever stops. So yeah. she's like she's born in nineteen seventy nine. She's six years older than than me. She's not like kids get off my lawn, but No, I she's kind of in that yeah. prime window of 
the generation that I think that I hear when they're online, mostly they're kind of walking the tightrope, right? Where it's like, this is an incredibly powerful tool of communication that if harnessed correctly is great. But also I was mostly an adult almost before it really took hold. Yeah, right. Like we, you and I grew up with the internet, but these people were... In college or for coming a very out. Yeah, yeah. Like, for like a very short amount of time without the internet or like at least without the pervasive internet because I think yeah. there was that there was that time in the mid to late nineties where I think the internet was like an add on to a lot of stuff it wasn't like a core business for most places or people true true because uh, mm-hmm. we went through college our freshman year of college was when Facebook like dropped. In the- when Facebook happened, it was like our the first our freshman year was the first year that our college had wireless routers. Set yep. up. Like they turned them on like four or five weeks into school and it was kind of miraculous at the time. Yeah. So one of the things there is definite there's like definitely a chapter in this book where she basically channeled that quote into how a character walks through New York City. Um but there's also this uh, preoccupation with the things that we've built and how individual people built them. Um, so if you imagine anything that was on a shelf, like in a store, that one of the characters who's kind of on his own walking is thinking about like, oh, I, who is the person that packaged it? Who is the person that invented that packaging? Who is the person that signed the order for that thing to come off a boat? Who's the person that drove that boat? Like she is interested in all of the people behind all of those technologies. Um, so when this reminds me of a quote, when Jeevan is like in his brother's apartment, they're in the like 90 days where all the bad stuff goes down. Um, his brother ends up taking his own life. Cause he's like, I'm not going to go out there in my wheelchair. I need you to go out and just attempt to be alive. Um, Jeevan thinks we bemoaned the impersonality of the modern world, but that was a lie. It seemed to him it had never been impersonal at all. There had always been a massive, delicate infrastructure of people, all of them working unnoticed around us. And when people stop going to work, the entire operation grinds to a halt, which is like a really pessimistic endorsement of something like 99% invisible. In a way. That's how <laughs> infrastructure works, though. Yeah, and and also that's like it happens in slow motion when you don't pay enough money for it. Saying. That's true. Um, but one of the one of the things about the breakdown of society in this book, which you don't get right away. So as you alluded to, she jumps ahead twenty years, and we start getting like Kirsten and the traveling actors, and then it will occasionally jump back. And I was surprised to find that it jumped back, and you get the story of Arthur Leander, this actor, and his tabloid exploits with his wives and and his search for connection and then along the way you get little side street kind of dives into what actually went down in the first couple months as this disease dropped and that's where jeevan is um it's where you get the like airport in severn city michigan where as you were saying there's this fascination with the with the technology from the before time. So after all of the people in this airport who just like, they all got rerouted there when they were flying to New York city or Toronto or whatever. And then this plane, they're all sitting in this airport, like figuring out where to go. And this other plane lands and nobody gets off. And there's this beat where I think Clark considers the fact that 
somebody on that plane was sick and everyone else, and somebody on that plane made the decision to not let anyone out which is really gruesome <laughs> and Uh-oh. like think about like and to, to your point earlier she doesn't show you that scene i think a more genre e post-apocalyptic book would like show you that plane dealing with that conversation and what went down yeah it, it, i guess it depends on the on the the book you're reading or whatever but but yeah it's the the this kind of post-apocalyptic fiction that resonates with me the most personally is the stuff that deals in implications rather than yeah and being really explicit about it or like showing us exactly how it goes down is it shows you the result of what went down and then either by filling in a little bit of context or just by relying on the reader to know stuff like they can draw their own conclusions about what that must have been like. Sure. Like there's actually, there's a, um, and I wrote about this like ages and ages and ages ago. Um, there, so there's this, um, zombie game called left for dead which mm. was a it was like an xbox and pc game that you and i played mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a ton like a decade ago yeah almost ago. yeah almost um and it's you know it's it's the the kinds of zombies are very like 28 days later like there's no reasoning with them there's no yep there's no anything i love those like stories where you can sit down and debate a zombie those are there's <laughs> just sit down and reason with a zombie it happens there's been zombie fiction more recently yes. where they've been like sexy <laughs> No. Like there's that I know, movie I know. where that there's that sexy zombie boy and oh, then like I zombie oh, like all yeah. the ze- all the zombies are pretty sexy. Sure, uh huh. And actually, if you have sex with a zombie, you turn into a zombie. Ew. Don't be gross. Craig. Okay, sure. Go ahead. Continue your point. <laughs> but there's this so uh, there's this um scripted bit of this one stage where you're at an airport trying to get out, mm. and a mm-hmm. plane comes down to try to land. And like it's flying all bad and weird, but as it's like coming down, the landing gear comes out, mm. and it's never like commented on. But I always thought that was really creepy. Is like whatever was driving that was like just oh sure human enough to think to put the wheels down. Oh god, <laughs> and that creeped me out a lot. Like I creeped myself out just like, thinking, thinking about, about it. So like I probably thought about it more than the game designers did, and sure. it creeped me out. Uh. Well, I really like the airport passage in this book. I'm glad that you kind of brought up another version of that because there it, there are pilots who just like in the first month of the apocalypse are just like, you know what? I'm going to take this plane and I'm going to go to L.A. And a couple people <laughs> they just like took a plane <laughs> and they just leave. And the people at the airport are like, I don't know if that's it. OK. And you don't know what happened to them. You don't know if they were able to land. You don't know how L.A. is. Um, they, they were just like stuff is going bad here. So I'm going to get out. going to go for it. Can. OK. Um, and the, the airport actually becomes this kind of like they end up with the largest settlement that you see in the book. Uh, but it's like a bunch of Tom Hanks's. Yeah, it is. All trying yeah, to get back to Krakosia. Uh, one of the. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the fake war torn country from the terminal i don't know <laughs> because he says i come from krakosia a oh, bunch krakosia. of times. um there's a couple like <laughs> really real moments at the airport i made myself laugh i know so i'm just okay. i don't mean to bring you down here but like no, one of the no bring me now bring me down one of the things i'll i'll i was struck by uh was that they're in this airport and a girl 
realizes that she's out of antidepressants. Like she was gonna be flying home to Arizona, and she if you're gonna go to Arizona, you need antidepressants. Well, and she only had as much as she could for the trip. I'm just and funny. You I know, I know. In Arizona, and yeah. she can't get home, and then she starts to go through withdrawal, and no one can really help her. And then she just like walks into the woods and just disappears. So like the book has a lot of those kind of glancing blows with characters that you don't spend a lot of time with. It's just like, here's what might've happened to someone in that situation. They're gone now. Um, so I, I do want to cover like some of the bigger plot points just in a summary way, just so folks kind of know what's up in this book. Okay. Um, and then we got to get to what you have. Like, I know you I have, have a struck me funny and I know you had something where you said, don't let me talk too long because I want to talk about this. That, yeah, okay. Uh, so Kirsten, who's the actor in the traveling troupe, I would argue she's your main character. We follow her plot is the one that kind of close. It opens the apocalypse era and it closes the, the narrative of the book. And this traveling troupe of actors goes to different towns. They encounter one that's led by this mysterious prophet character who's the closest thing you get to an antagonist. Uh, he's like taking young girls as his wives. He believes that the virus was some sort of cleansing flame from an almighty. And he is, though claiming that he and his people are, quote, the light, he is certainly uh, not above doing nefarious things in the name of that. Um, huh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> uh, his, and his identity gets kind of revealed to be a character that you meet through the other strains of the book, which uh, all the characters in this book are related in some way, not literally, but they're tied together through a couple different plot points. Um, the main one being that the first wife of Arthur, this woman named Miranda, uh, she draws this comic book, this graphic novel called Station Eleven. And it's a starship that was sent out into the far reaches of the universe after Earth was conquered by an alien race. And in their, like, jump through a wormhole or something, it was damaged, so it's perpetually nighttime. And also the, like, temperature things got messed up, so it's mostly ocean. It's like a fake The climate controls. Yeah, the climate controls got messed up. That's what the Star Trek speech for it would be. Mm -hmm. So there are two groups of people on station 11 there are the people who live in the undersea who want to return to earth and take their chances with aliens and there's dr 11 and the other folks who live on the islands who are like we can we need to stick it out here we need to keep going um and they're this like these comics get passed on to Kirsten when she's a young girl so she's carried them into the post-apocalypse with her there were only like 10 copies printed um and so they tie together a couple of different characters as this kind of unique bit of art that has survived even though it's of you know it's the art is supposed to be very good but maybe the story doesn't make any sense like they kind of talk about that a couple of times sure it's um, very mr burns it is it is mr burns um and the other this will this will get into for me i think the the bigger one of the thematic things in this book other than celebrating technology as we remember it is the importance of art in your life and how it gives you you know how it gives meaning so this shakespearean troupe um one of their caravans which is mostly a bunch of like jeeps that are dragged by horses 
they have <laughs> a motto on the lead caravan that says survival is insufficient. Mm-hmm. Do you recognize that quote, Andrew? Yeah, it's from Star Trek Voyager. Do you know what episode it's from? Um, probably some Borg one. Yep, it's it's one with Borg. It's episode one twenty two, which, according to the notes in this novel, aired for the first time in September nineteen ninety nine. Star Trek Voyager one twenty two. So survival instinct. <laughs> Seven of nine encounters three Borg with whom she was previously linked. Mm. I have a complicated relationship with Star Trek Voyager, <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about it now because we don't have a whole nother podcast no no that's fair but this idea and kirsten has this tattooed on her arm and it's this idea that like we can't just subsist we have to have art we have to have music so they travel to these towns and bring that to people there's a there's a member of the troupe that uh ends up going missing and this is a really nice vignette they find a letter that she wrote a year ago they think that's just one sentence. Dear friends, I find myself immeasurably weary and I have gone to rest in the forest. So she disappears and they're not sure if this is like a suicide note or not. And later you find out that she was actually writing her own play because she thought the Shakespeare canon was irrelevant to their apocalyptic reality. And wanted... I mean, I can see that. Well, that's... In... so. They... I mean, I, I don't... Yeah. Well, but also I don't know how Shakespeare is supposed to be particularly relevant to our lives pre-apocalypse sure either. sure so there's this debate in the book where some of the characters in the troupe are like listen shakespeare was the fourth one of his parents kids and like the first to survive they lived in plague times his art like helped people endure and find meaning and it still does that today so we're going to give that to people it makes it cheers people up and she's like yeah but shakespeare didn't lose airplanes in the internet and stuff so now you know what airplanes and the internet were exactly like for him all of the discoveries of technology were in the future not the past so she wanted to make art that like that's probably not how he saw it no of course like what would happen if you got rid of the printing press shakespeare would lose his mind (laughs) i guess so he'd be like forsooth (laughs) zunes he would go to a go go to a nunnery i can't print my books that's that's my favorite line in hamlet Go to get, a, go to a nunnery. I can't print my books. Get over to the nunnery and give me some monks yeah. and nuns to write me some copies of some books because that's how it worked before the printing press. That's how it worked, said the witch. <laughs> Andrew Shakespeare coming in twenty eighteen. <laughs> um, so I really like that kind of like debate of why we have art in this terrible world and and what is the best art to suit it. And then this, of course, all aligns with the production of Lear that happens at the beginning of the book and Arthur as this like character who is who's defined by regret um same yep <laughs> and uh it's i found it interesting that it's actually based on a production of of King Lear that she saw that had like these non-speaking child versions of Lear's daughters um and that it opened with him like silently considering his crown and that, because he dies right then, and then the other characters, their lives are kind of cut short by this disease. There, You get these little snippets of people who had plans for themselves. Like, he is Arthur, this rich man who's had kind of a sad life, is thinking about what to do with his money, how he can give it away to people. He just wants to go move and be with his son. 
um, you got that guy, Jeevan, who is going to be a paramedic, but like he used to be a paparazzi and now the, he's like trying to make a better life for himself and he can't because of the apocalypse. Um, and a couple of different characters have stories like that. So I, I don't know. I, that just for me is the, the other half of this book that I think people have really responded to, which is it's not a plot driven, oh man, how are they going to survive the zombies? Oh man, how are they going to like, the prophet is an antagonist mostly so that you have one. I don't think that that's actually a strong part of the book. Sure. Um, you have to have some conflict in there somewhere, I guess. Yeah. A lot of it is kind of these elegaic, elegaic, elegaic. I don't know. Um, like I'm just going to let me flounder give you some that. more yeah. rope over there. <laughs> just kind of meditating on who these people were and are or were before they died um, with limited scenes of what it was like for society to break down um i think it's a lot about like what you will be remembered for or what you choose to remember to carry you forward Mm -hmm. and it's also about and that kind of goes along with the technology thing of like do you teach your kid about the technology that we used to have or and like freak them out that like people used to live till 80 but now they don't get to anymore because we don't have modern medicine um or do you like just ignore the world that came before and just try to like forge a path onward um yeah i don't to say yeah i don't know um i do want to share was that was the was the thing that you wanted to get to before we close so the character clark who is a good friend of arthur's from when he's a younger actor in nyc um he takes on this role in his life where he is a corporate consultant where his job is to like reform CEOs whose employees are complaining about them, which is an interesting job. The way to reform those normally, I think, is to get rid of them. them. Yeah. Um, But so he ends up surviving in the airport. He ends up opening this museum of the civilization. I think it's called uh, where he like holds on to iPhones and stuff so that people can look at them and know what was in the before time. Mm-hmm. And there's this section where he is talking to his friend Garrett about corporate speak that used to exist. Oh, gross. Uh, and it's pretty funny. So I just kind of want to read it to you. I hate it. I hate it already. And see what you think. One, I, I'm almost there. Uh, oh, boy. Here. Oh, geez. Can you please go outside the box with this and synergize some of my uh, core competencies uh, so that I can better realize my potential as a team leader. Okay, so the one guy, Garrett, is talking about how literally the last thing he said to someone before the apocalypse was a, was a call to his boss. And he says, let's touch base with Nancy. Then we should reach out to Bob and circle back next week. I'll shoot Larry an email. Don't shoot anybody in- and then he says, why did we always say we were going to shoot emails? Why did, couldn't we just say we were going to send them? We were just pressing a button. And then Clark says, not even a real button, a picture of his button on a screen. And Garrett's like, that's exactly what I'm talking about. He says, there was not, in fact, an email gun, although that would have been nice. I would have preferred that. And then Garrett says, I used to write thanks when I wanted to say thank you. Like T-A-T-H-X. Oh, TH. You know, like you do on Twitter or whatnot. What's the museum of emoji like is what I want to know. <laughs> God, maybe that's a thing you don't tell your kids about because you don't want them to know what they're missing now. We stopped using words. And we just started using cartoon faces and poops and stuff. Yeah. 
and like clapping hands. Tell me more internet. about why everybody was always using the thinking face emoji all the time. I do like that. I laughed out loud when they said there was not an email gun. Like I didn't expect this book about disease, disease apocalypse to make me laugh. And the phrase there was not in fact an email gun got me pretty good. There isn't though. They got that right. It's true. It's just pretty not good. how it works. <laughs> oh man. There's so much. Corporate speak is bad. I don't like it. Yeah. I had another point to make, but I forgot what it was, so I'm just going to say corporate speak is the worst. Do you have particular phrases that you dislike? You don't like shoot an email? I feel like you and I say shoot an email, though. Shoot an email? No, shoot an email is fine. I don't like circle back. <laughs> I don't like when people end an email with thoughts. Because <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. That means nothing. Okay, okay. I get weird. I get a little uncomfortable when people have ellipses in emails that, like, at the end of emails, where they just say sure. thanks dot dot dot, and dot, I dot, don't dot, know what yeah. that means. Like, it mean they just trail off. It, it's the equivalent of trailing off and walking away from a real conversation. <laughs> it just leaves the whole previous message in doubt to me. Like, I don't know how they felt about anything they just said. Yeah, I mean, my I guess my my stuff about email that I hate more, and this is something that I'd be interested to see an email about ex- museum. Oh, okay. Exhibit on is people who are just bad at emails, like mm. people who send mm. people who send like high priority emails to an entire disk list that where they could send it to like two people and it would have been fine, or people who or like is there a whole exhibit on when you accidentally send something to everyone in an organization and there becomes this big reply all chain where everybody keeps saying, Oh, you sent this wrong. Oh, take me off this list. There was one of those that happened at Condé Nast that was so bad that the New York times wrote about it. Oh no. Oh no. I will in, in the theater community, there's like in particular productions, we have different reports that'll go out after each performance and some of them are for just the company of like how the audience went some of them are from the production team about how the performance went on their end and there is a delicate dance that you have to do like do you reply all about the one prop note so that everyone thinks it's for them or do you just like respond to the two people it matters to and then who's who's upset that they weren't included on that email there's i don't I don't like having to worry about feelings in email. See, but it's like, the only successful way to send email is to worry the, about feelings. A, a related problem is when someone sends an email to an entire group that obviously only applies to like one or two people. Like if they they'll send an email that's like, "Don't be a jerk on Twitter" or something. <laughs> like, and they're obviously just talking about one person, but they do it as an email to the group. And my experience with that has been usually the person who's being addressed does is not self-aware enough to know that it applies Correct. to them. They assume and it's the for people, someone else. Yeah. Right. And the people who just worry serially about everything are suddenly worried about something they must have tweeted that they don't remember. Well, in the apocalypse, I won't miss email. How about that? I won't miss email either. If you want to send us an signals. email, yeah, let's go back to smoke signals. If you want to send us an email, but if you send us a bad email, I swear to God, I will find you and I will ask thoughts. 
If you want to circle back and As shoot I'm us an email to overduepod at gmail.com, you can go right ahead. We get them all the time. We try to respond when we can. You could also, I think this phrase will, will be one of the ones in the record books. You could hit us up on social media at facebook.com slash overduepod or twitter.com slash overduepod. We got a lot of folks who reached out to us in the past week after our Constitution episode and in response to this episode. Uh, so I want to thank Obiimi, Tanya, Daniel, Chris, Christina, Christopher, uh, Ryan at the Toronto Star who wrote about us. Yeah, uh, what? That was awesome. Uh, Rebecca, the Jefferson Market, New York Public Library branch. Uh, Scott, Becky, Kara, Whitney, Kathleen, Elizabeth, Valerie, Grace, Pumperton, Nickel, uh, Eric, Podteen, of course, Sabrina, Helen, the New York Public Library Harmond, Sarah, Sophie, Catherine, Melissa, Taylor, Nora, Nicole, Yusanim, Byers, of course, Noel, Bob, Starfish, Chick, Cardi, e, Carrie, Mr. J, Kara, Yerba Suena, Stephanie, Sonia, Jennifer, Teresa, Jeff, Dave, Christina, Feminist Furies, Books of Park Place, Ingsoc, Tessa, Camille, Ebby, and Kelly. I went to a weird place. Thanks, everyone, for reaching <laughs> out. It makes us feel good. Thanks. Andrew, if they wanted to learn more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com, which is where we have links to the books that we have read, the ones that we are going to read. And um, we've also got links to iTunes, our RSS feed, our Stitcher page, our Google Play page. Those are all ways you can subscribe to the show. If you do subscribe in iTunes, rate and review us. It helps us rise in them at iTunes rankings and it helps other people find the show. Word of mouth is how we grow. So that sort of thing really helps us out. And it also just makes us feel good. It gives us a good old self-esteem boost. Um, we've got links to HeadGum, our podcast network, Spreaker, our podcast host. Um, what else? We have links to our Patreon page. That's mm-hmm. patreon.com slash overdue pod. We published a few changes to that a couple of weeks ago. You can go and check out. This book was um, recommended to us by Scott, who was a Patreon donor. So thanks, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I hope we did a great job, which we absolutely did. Definitely. Um, Something we didn't mention earlier in the show, we went up to the New York Public Library last week, and we recorded an episode of The Librarian is In with uh, Frank and Gwen. It was like a stealth show of Overdue, though. They read Lore of the Flies, and then we talked about it. So they've released that on their feed already. But if you don't want to go listen to that, which you you should, you really should, you can listen to it on our feed next week when we drop it. So that'll be next week's episode. And then um, for the bonus show, I read The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. And uh, we're going to hopefully record that show sometime this week and get it to you before the month is over. We'll just we'll see how that goes. Yep. Uh, yeah. Schedules get tight. So just, yeah, sit with us. But we got lots of premium hashtag content coming down. For we you. also, we didn't mention it at all this episode. We do have our store running through the end of the month. Go to overduepodcast.com slash store. You can get mugs and totes and bookmarks and stickers. Please do it. We'd yeah, love for you to have one. Last week on that, it's uh, we're running that till January 31st. And then we're taking it offline and we don't know when it'll be back. So go check it out. Um, we'll make sure we... Uh, publicize it a few more times before uh, before it goes. But yeah, go see it. Uh, Craig, anything else? Are we good? We good? We did it? We did it. Enjoy next week. Frank and Gwen are awesome. Yeah, have fun. Okay, everybody. We'll see you then. Until Monday, try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast. Got a hot mic. Hot mic. Hot, hot mic. Hot, hot, you know that song? Like, like, <sighs> I feel like I'm like street calling a man named Mike. Hot mic. Get hot, hot, hot. Hey, this is... <laughs> welcome to the morning zoo with Hot Mike and... I don't know who else would be on my morning zoo. This, oh man, this hot good. Mike in the sludge. <laughs> <laughs>